Hi, I'm Tebble, and this is the podcast for Centerpoint Church, located in Hendersonville, Tennessee. We are on a series called Jesus and the Nazis. In this series, we will take a look at the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer to see how God can work even in the middle of evil empires. This week, we are launching a brand new series called Jesus and the Nazis. So if it's your first time here, like you picked a great week to be here. It's week one. I actually wrote this series about eight months ago, and it was really hard for me not to just preach it right away. So I've been chomping at the bit to preach Jesus and the Nazis for a while. And during these four weeks, we're going to look back at the era of World War II, and we're going to be talking about a man by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Now, this is a man that some of you have probably never heard of before. In fact, I'm going to wager that most of you have never heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, yet you can name all of the Kardashians. That's a problem. And so what I, and so can I, but what I want us to talk about is who Dietrich Bonhoeffer was and what it has to do with our life today. And I think it's going to be a lot more than you think. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a reverend a theologian, a doctor, a disruptor, a spy, a would-be assassin. He got involved in the failed assassination plot and attempt on the life of Adolf Hitler, we'll talk about in a couple of weeks, and ultimately became a martyr, which means he died for his faith. And the main idea of this entire series, we're going to go over it over and over again, is counting the cost of following Jesus. What is it going to cost you to follow Jesus? What does a life look like of following Jesus? And, and I, I want you to hear this. We're going to have it up on the screen because it's important enough. Is this idea that countercultural faithfulness will cost you. Make no mistake that follow, if your view of following Jesus lines up perfectly with the culture that we're living in today, one of two things have happened. One, it's the wrong Jesus, or two, you're not following him. And countercultural faithfulness, I, I don't know about you, but for the first time in my life, I'm starting to feel some tension that following Jesus is no longer in the majority of what the society around me feels like doing or says to do. I feel now as if I'm in the minority. I feel now as if things have started to shift rapidly around me and I don't know what happened. Anybody else feel that tension? But make no mistake that countercultural faithfulness does have a cost. And I don't want any of you be, to be deceived of what a life following Jesus is supposed to look like. This is why I love the Bible. Lots of reasons why I love the Bible, but you've heard me say this before probably, is there's a cross on the cover, man. We don't try to hide it. It's an instrument of death right at the beginning. There's a quote by this guy named Ray Ortman Sr. He's an author and theologian. He's been dead a long time, so don't worry about it if you don't know him. But I want you to hear this. I, I came across this this week. I found it fascinating. It says, half-hearted Christians are the most miserable people of all. They know enough about God to feel guilty, but they haven't gone far enough with Christ to be happy. Isn't that the truth? I've been there. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was perplexed by why Christians would say what they believe, but they would live a different way. It's not just hypocrisy. It's more of you say that you believe these things in faith, but then you live in a way as if you don't need faith 
because you're going to work everything out on your own first. And to him, it was, why would you even say one thing if you're not going to live it? And that you can find out a lot more about what you believe based upon how you live than what you say. But there is a cost. Let's talk a little bit about the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Over the next four weeks, we're going to cover his entire life. And each week, we're also going to be looking at a portion of Scripture. And then we're also going to look at what does it have to do with you and I? Right? Why do I care about some dude I've never heard of? And, and what does it have to do with society today? And I think it's going to be alarming to you how much it has to do with society today. 1906 in Poland, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was born. We have a family picture right here of Dietrich and his family. It's slightly highlighted. Believe it or not, Dietrich is this blonde-haired child over here. He looks kind of like one of the children of the corn in a Stephen King book. But that's Dietrich, big family, very prestigious family he was born into. His father was the most well-known uh, psychologist in all of Germany. Like, dude was successful. In fact, he has an older brother who at age 23 helped Albert Einstein split the atom. What were you doing at 23? Marshall, don't laugh. I know what you were doing at 23. <laughs> and, and, and in World War I, one of his brothers died, and it really affected his mom. His mom had a mental health battle that she struggled with the rest of her life, dealing, having difficulty dealing with the death of her child. And, and I think that Dietrich, this made him wrestle with this idea of, if there is a God, then why would he allow something such as war? And he declared at age 13 that he was going to be a theologian. He was going to pursue a life of studying who God is. This was surprising to his family because when he was 13, what were, what were you doing at 13? What are some of you 13-year-olds doing with your life? Probably not pursuing theology. <laughs> but it also surprised his family because they weren't, they weren't super religious. They were the type of family, yes, they were Lutheran. And, and, and yes, they went to church. But there's a difference between going through the motions of going to church and dedicating your life to the Lord. I tell people all the time, I got saved in seventh grade, but it wasn't until age 33 that I gave my life to the Lord. There's a difference. By 21 years of age, Dietrich Bonhoeffer receives his doctorate in theology. What were you doing at age 21? Well, let's not go there. In fact, his dissertation that he wrote for his doctorate, the leading theologian at the time, Karl Barth, he called it, and I quote, a theological miracle. Do you know what my teacher, when I wrote my master's dissertation, do you know what he called my dissertation? He called it a C plus. <laughs> and by then I was like, well, D stands for degree. Let's move on. <laughs> but he called his dissertation a theological miracle. So in 1930, Dietrich Bonhoeffer gets on a boat and sails to New York City. And he attends Union Theological Seminary. He's an adjunct faculty member, but he also takes classes. And this is going to be important. You're probably wondering, why do I care where he went? Because in New York City, he encounters a friend that I believe changes the trajectory of his life. It was a young man by the name of Frank Fisher. Frank Fisher. If we can put this picture up, this is his class at the seminary. And you'll notice this African-American gentleman right here in the middle, that's Frank Fisher. Now, Frank 
and Dietrich become good friends. And Frank takes Dietrich Bonhoeffer to his church. Abyssinian Baptist Church, the largest black church in America. Now imagine for a moment a scrawny, skinny, very pale German dude being invited by his friend to the largest black church in America. I actually have a picture of that church today. It is still in existence in Harlem, New York. It's beautiful, isn't it? And, and, and when Dietrich goes to this church, he hears from a man by the name of Pastor Adam Clayton Powell, a fiery preacher. And believe it or not, their services lasted a whole lot longer than ours do. And, and, and why this affected Dietrich so much is because he sees for the first time in his life what it looks like to actually praise God. And to actually, he actually sees what it's like when people are desperate for God to show up in their life. Because all the other Lutheran churches he went to, people would show up, no one smiled, they'd go through the motion and read your hymnal and say this and go home quickly to beat the Pentecostals to the restaurants. Let's get out of here early. Like He just kept seeing the same thing and there was no joy of the Lord, there was no desperation for him to show up, there was no evidence of the Holy Spirit. You ever been to one of those churches? Don't say its name. But he goes to this church and he sees a group of people who actually have the joy of the Lord. He sees a group of people who are struggling, who have faced adversity, who have had family members not too far back in their tree go through some difficult times. And they were desperate for God to heal those broken places. They sang what was called at the time the Negro Spirituals and Dietrich Bonhoeffer loved it because it was not ritualistic. It was dripping with emotion. In fact, he bought and picked up as many phonographs he could of these songs and he became a lifelong fan of these spirituals. But the reason that I think that this changed him is twofold. I think it changed him because he saw what it really should look like to follow Jesus. He saw what it was really like to be desperate for him in your life as daily bread. I also think that it opened his eyes to the issues with segregation going on in the United States at the time. And he saw what it looked like when other human beings made in the image of God were treated as less than. And I know this would affect him a few short years later when he sees the Jews in Nazi Germany being treated as less than. He spends nine months at that seminary and then he's got to go back to Germany. 1931, he goes back to Germany as a professor of theology at Berlin University. But he returned to a very different looking Germany than what he left. See, in nine months, culture had shifted dramatically there was a new political party that was on the rise called the National Socialist German Workers' Party. You may have heard of it before as the Nazi Party, led by a very young, charismatic leader by the name of Adolf Hitler. We have a picture of this. The Jews were there. Communists were there. Socialists were there. And then all of a sudden the Nazi party comes to power and, and this man named Adolf Hitler 
is on the rise socially. You gotta remember that this is after World War I. The Treaty of Versailles really left Germany in shambles. They, they were in economic distress. They had the shame of the world. You know, to the victor goes the spoils, man. And, and whoever wins the war, they get to write the history of the war. And so Germany was really looked down on and they were desperate. And people were looking to this man named Adolf Hitler as the savior to save the country. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, no, no, no. The only thing that's going to save Germany is Jesus. But in the nine months he was gone, culture had shifted. Now, I don't know, church, if you've noticed, in the last few years, culture has shifted. The question is, are we going to be a generation of men and women that stand up for what the Bible says even when culture shifts away from it? So, Adolf Hitler is considered by people, believe it or not, pretty early on in his political career, he's considered to be a moderate. He's considered to be a unifier of the country. <laughs> you ever heard anybody run for president that says they're going to unify the country? I've heard it from like the last five. And they said that he's going to unify the country. In fact, he would even say phrases like this, that he wants God's will for Germany to be done. And the people were so desperate for a leader that would rise up that they bought it hook, line, and sinker. Dietrich Bonhoeffer recognizes this. He recognizes what's happening. He's recognized that culture is shifting and so he starts to speak up. In fact, just a few years later, once Hitler becomes chancellor, he's gonna, Dietrich Bonhoeffer is going to speak out against him on the radio. And in the middle of his speech, it gets cut off from the airwaves. Because if you can control the communication, you control the narrative. Sound familiar? Adolf Hitler, as soon as he starts to acquire this power, then his language starts to shift a little bit. We're going to talk about this a lot next week, that language matters, words matter, and society will often try to change your language to change the ideas. But language matters. And, and Adolf Hitler has now convinced the people of Germany that the only reason they lost World War I was because they had some traitors from within the country. So he convinces the people of Germany to first turn on themselves. In the same way that the devil is going to convince churches to turn on themselves. The local church can only be defeated from within. You know that, right? So don't be surprised when within a church people will back talk and cuss and gossip and have these giant arguments being so distracted about pews versus chairs. What a waste of time when we got a world to win. Adolf Hitler has the same strategy. He convinces the people that there's three groups, I already addressed them earlier, that are the reason they lost World War I. And if they could eradicate these three groups, Germany can rise to prominence again. The communists, the socialists, and the rats. The Jews. His words, not mine. Forgive me, Father. And if we can just get rid of those people, then Germany can rise to power again, which he says is the will of God. Taking who God is 
and morphing him to fit in what your will is and what you want. Sound familiar? So what I want us to do now is I want us to really pivot for a moment and take a look at what Jesus said because I think it's gonna line up perfectly with where Dietrich is at this time. Because he knows if he makes a stand and says something, it will cost him. He has an academic career. He has hopes of getting married one day and having children. He has a following. Countercultural faith will always cost you. We just aren't often willing to pay the price. But if you're not willing to pay the price, the next generation will pay the price. We're going to be in Dr. Luke's gospel for the next couple of verses. Any idea what book of the Bible that is? It's Luke. You guys are so smart. We're going to be in chapter 9. These are the words of Jesus. In fact, in your Bible, if you have one, it's this big book that has lots of pages in it. Uh, it even says over here as the heading, the cost of following Jesus. If you just spend some time listening to the words of Jesus, it eliminates the entire idea of the prosperity gospel. It doesn't exist. Jesus never told you that. In fact, I challenge you to find one person in the scripture whose life got better by the world standards after they radically started following Jesus. You, you probably won't find it. So if you're only in this place so that your life gets better, <laughs> aren't you in for a rude awakening? If you think being around me is going to financially make your life better, <laughs> ask Thomas Pugh how that worked out for him. <laughs> Verse 57. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. What a weird response. What we're going to see in this passage is three different people say they're going to follow Jesus, and then Jesus goes out of his way to like almost talk them out of it. He just said, I'll follow you anywhere. As soon as they say that, like we're supposed to hand them the church coffee mug with our logo on it. We're supposed to congratulate them. We're supposed to be like, okay, and here's a card. Please fill out your information so we can spam your email and never leave you alone. <laughs> like that's what you're supposed to do. The 9 a.m. thought that was hilarious. Just wanted to let you know. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> and Jesus has a very weird response. Like this dude says, I'm gonna follow you. And he starts talking about foxes and birds. And it's like, and on the surface, these are gonna, all three of these answers of Jesus are gonna be strange. They're gonna appear almost sociopathic. It's gonna, it's gonna be very odd on the surface, but I want you to understand the point Jesus is trying to make is there is a cost to following him. It will cost you. So what he tells this man when he says foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head, he's saying this path that you say you want, it will not be easy. And I think even today, you and I, we're in such a materialistic world that he's trying to say, if you follow me, then the things that man thinks are important, you can't. And you're going to never feel like you're home. You're going to never be comfortable. You're going to be an alien in this world because you, this world is no longer your home. So if you want to be comfortable, <laughs> don't follow me. 
If you want to stay in a nice, quiet little life and ignore, ignore all of the people around you and just do what you want to do, then this is not the path for you. And he's telling them on the front and count the cost. You know how many times men and women have come up to me after service or they've reached out to me after service. I had an appointment and we meet and they would just say, you know, God is telling me to do this. He's been telling me for a while, but he really spoke to me at your service on Sunday and I'm going to do it. And then I would say, awesome. And then I would see them the next week and then I would see them three weeks later and then I would see them months later and, and, and now they're not here because they weren't willing to pay the price. The sacrifice comes before the blessing. Before the blessing. Second guy, this man actually is recruited by Jesus. Verse 59, he said to another man, follow me, but he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. It's a, again, kind of a mean response. Like, Jesus, you must have been in a bad mood that day, man. You didn't have coffee. You, like, what's going on, man? I've had those days. Five of the days a week, I'm, I'm that way. Don't you laugh. It's a weird response. Like this guy, poor guy, he just wants to go bury his dad. Like what's so, what's so difficult about that? On the surface, it would appear that way. But remember, you gotta look through scripture culturally. Culturally, it tells us a lot. It's according to Jewish tradition, the oldest child would be the one that would be responsible for burying their parents when they died. So we know right away he's the oldest child. Why is that important? Because that means he's gonna get all of the inheritance. Is there any, anybody in here who's the oldest child? I am. We're just responsible, wise, mature. And we're waiting for an inheritance, right? But in order to do that, this process, according to Jewish tradition, that's an important word, could take up to a year. And he tells Jesus, follow me. Or Jesus tells him, follow me. And he says, okay, but first... I've got to get these affairs in order because as soon as I get him buried, then after a while, I can get the inheritance, get everything lined up for my family, and then I'm all in. There's three words that we're going to see all three of these people have a problem with, and you and I have a problem with these words too because we say them. It's but, if, and when. Listen to this. He says, I will follow you with everything I have when... I get these things lined up. I will follow you, Jesus, but I won't do this, 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 or this. For a long time, I ran away from my calling that I knew God had on my life because I was afraid of what he was gonna ask me to give up because I really love my habits. And I was afraid of what if what if he calls me to go to a church with nobody there in the middle of COVID? And then he did it. <laughs> what if he calls me to go be a missionary at a hut in a hut in Africa? What if he asks me, we, we say this, I will follow you, but I won't do that. I will follow you 
if you do this. I will follow you when I get older, when I get married, when I can retire, when my savings account is enough, when my house is paid off. I'll follow you as long as it fits within what I want to do. And Jesus is saying, then don't do it. Then don't do it. Count the cost. The third person. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first, let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the service in the kingdom of God. Again, doesn't seem that bad. Just wants to say goodbye. Maybe break up with a girlfriend. No, you guys would text message to do that. You know you would. How many of you ever broke up with somebody through Snapchat? Don't raise your hand. I don't even have a Snapchat, but I'm old. Back when I was a kid, we used to write notes and put them in girls' locker, lockers, check yes or no. Yeah, George Strait knows what's up. He, he, he just wants to say goodbye to his family, so what's wrong with that? I'm going to let the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer himself tell you what's wrong with this response. I read this book in preparation for this series. Uh, it's written by Dietrich Bonhoeffer called The Cost of Discipleship. I'm telling you now, do not read this book because it will ruin your life. So don't read it and then come blame me when God ruins your life. But there's a cost. And listen to what Dietrich himself said. His hands wrote this. The third would-be disciple lands himself in a hopeless inconsistency for although he is ready enough to throw in his lot with Jesus, he succeeds in putting up a barrier between himself and the master. He wants to follow but feels obliged to insist on his own terms. Discipleship to him is a possibility which can only be realized when certain conditions have been fulfilled. If you've used the but, if, or when when talking to Jesus, don't feel bad. It doesn't make you a bad Christian. It makes you perfectly normal and average. But history doesn't remember perfectly normal and average people. It remembers courageous men and women. This week I've been thinking about, as I've just kind of been letting this thing marinate, we're almost done today, believe it or not. Time flies when you're having a good time. And I've been thinking about this idea. I even posted on social media this week, which is really rare because I usually just post pictures of food. <laughs> but I, I posted this this idea of what are future generations going to say about this generation of Christians? Because make no mistake, we will be remembered. We, we look back even as far back as in the Old Testament, man, and we see Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego during Babylonian captivity. And when Nebuchadnezzar is telling them to bow down to the golden statue, we see them take a stand when culture was telling them to do otherwise, and they said, no, 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 I will not bow down. And we remember that. We also see generations of Christians that caved to what society said, even though they knew that it conflicted with what God said. We've not heard about people who God had a calling on their life, and they talked themselves out of it. 
and they made no impact. But there are some times in history where you're at a moment where God is looking for men and women to have courage. I was even thinking as I was talking about Frank Fisher and reading about that, I was thinking about Rosa Parks, who rather than stand up, she refused to stand up and sat down. When she saw the culture was shifting, that society said one thing that was completely conflicting with what the word of God said when it says that they're made in the image of God. What will future generations say about this generation? Because make no mistake, the end is near and culture is shifting away from the things of the Bible. Will this next generation say about us that they followed Jesus as long as they didn't have to suffer for it? That they followed Jesus as long as it fit into their calendar? They followed Jesus when it was convenient. They followed Jesus when dominant culture supported all of their beliefs. That's when they followed Jesus. They followed Jesus, but it was their version of Jesus rather than the real Jesus. They followed Jesus until it got difficult. They followed Jesus as long as it didn't interfere with what they wanted to do. See, for a long time, I wanted God to intervene, but I never wanted him to interfere. When I needed help, God, please intervene in my life. When things were good and nice and comfortable, God, please don't interfere with my life. Mind your own business till I need you. See, I think you and I right now, I think we're at a fork in the road. Well, we're gonna have to figure out what we're willing to stand for. I want you to hear this quote. We have it up on the screens from Dietrich Bonhoeffer himself. Silence in the face of evil is itself evil. God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. And you may just think to yourself, well, that's a quote from some dude in history. Is it even true? But remember, we started off by me telling you that Dietrich Bonhoeffer found it perplexing that you would say something and live a different way. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer is going to ultimately die for standing up against Adolf Hitler. Three weeks, ironically and tragically, before the war ends, the very last order given by Adolf Hitler before he committed suicide, was to execute Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And he spent the last few years of his life, we're gonna learn a lot more about this in week four, in a concentration camp with the Jews. And history will remember a man who stood up for God when society said elsewhere, elsewise. Let me try that again, because that was a good line. <laughs> But don't miss this because here's what I want future generations to think. I want future generations to say that this was the generation of men and women of God that stood strong when times got tough. 
that still had faith even when they had to bury people they loved and there was no evidence that God was answering their prayers, yet they still had faith. I want them to be encouraged by our faithfulness. I want them to be strengthened by the courage that we had. You see, God uses men and women during difficult times to make a difference. And it's not too late. How will the future generations view us? The very last thing I want you to remember is this. It's been kind of a theme lately, unintentionally. Is I think that a lot of people get it confused that they think that once you're born, God is like, okay, what should I do with this life? Now that we have this life, what should we do? When the reality is the scripture says that he puts you in a time and a place in the world's history where he thought you could make the biggest impact for his kingdom. So is it a difficult time to follow the Lord? Yes, it is. Is it a difficult time to be a man of God? Yes, it is. Is it a difficult time to lead your family? Yes, it is. Is it a difficult time as a young person or even as a single person to stand for purity in a culture that's obsessed with sex? Yes, it is. Is it a difficult time to stand for the things that God says when society says, did God really say, yes, it is. But he put you in this time for this purpose. How will we be remembered? Would you stand with me? I think we can do it. I think that we see all the time that revival starts with just one person. I think we can still learn from the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer that it will cost you, but Jesus never told us it would be easy. He told us it would be worth it. So as we close out in prayer, I'm gonna dismiss you right out of prayer. And I'm just gonna ask, what are you gonna do with this message? You're gonna be that person that is impacted for a couple of hours and then you just go right back to your life and right back to the rat race and right back to busyness? Or are you gonna be the person that says, I'm gonna live different, I'm gonna think different, I'm gonna act different, I'm gonna love different. I'm going to love the unlovable and I'm going to see the value in every life made 